0: This is Science Moab, a show exploring the science happening in Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm your host, Peggy Hodgkins, and today we're talking about seismology, or the study of sound waves that move through the earth. It turns out that the arches here in Moab are constantly vibrating, and each one has its own wave frequency based on its size and shape.
1: These arches are relatively simple mechanical systems should produce a relatively simple set of vibrational modes. They should be measurable. Honestly, we did not know if we would be able to measure the resonant frequencies from ambient seismic data.
0: That's Jeff Moore, leader of the Geohazards Research Group at the University of Utah. He and his colleague, Paul Geimer, got the idea to study how individual arches move and vibrate in response to wind, earthquakes, and humans.
1: In the best case, an arch wants to self-sculpt for stability. So an opening will grow and a lintel will sculpt to try to form the most stable form it can, shedding areas of the rock that are held in tension. Rock is very weak in tension and focusing the weight in compression. And natural arches are striving to achieve these, but in our experience and our measurements, they rarely get the chance to do so because rock and real rock masses have a lot of inherent structure, be it bedding or other cracks, that play a strong role in forcing the geometrical evolution of an arch The most stable stress-based form is is the famous inverted catenary. A catenary curve is is that which a chain takes hanging, hanging under its own weight, and so an inverted catenary is the opposite of that. And something like delicate arch has achieved a pretty fair inverted catenary form, and certainly Rainbow Bridge is really exceptional in that regard. Very few arches have achieved this ideal form.
0: And how much of achieving that is based on the initial rock type versus its environment, you know, how it was sculpted?
2: Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. I would say that the pre-existing rock plays a huge role in the strength of these. That's really determining much of what we're seeing today. You know, we see blocks falling off of, you know, cliff faces during rainfall or during cold periods uh, where you're getting ice formation, these kinds of things. But all these are still working towards this kind of self-sculpting goal um, in the end. And these are kind of just a blip on the, uh, the radar of you know, the lifespan of these, these features. So I, w- I would lean more towards the rock, you know, the millions of years that, that went into uh, that rock as playing the, the major role in, in what we're seeing today.
0: So essentially, you guys are using technology and science that you would use to measure an earthquake, say, but you're measuring these natural arches. Can you just go into a bit of the the physical process of how you're doing this? And how are you measuring the arch itself versus the ground around it?
2: So the the process is, is relatively simple. We go out and just like... The seismic networks do when they're installing a station to detect an earthquake. We've got the same equipment with us. And in our case, instead of burying it in the ground, like is usually done to uh, protect the instrument from the elements, we are placing it right up on the rock surface. So we're just setting the instruments down, we're not anchoring them in any way. And we aim to get as close to the center of the span as we can. Since we know that's where the largest amplitudes of vibrations are going to be happening as the arch bends and, and sways in, in the wind and other things. Oftentimes, we're not able to quite get that far out, um, whether it's safety or access or other reasons. So, we do the best we can. Maybe we're on the kind of the shoulder of the arch. And as far as distinguishing between what we're measuring at that station and if the energy is coming from the arch or from somewhere else, as often as we can, we usually have two instruments with us. So one will go out on the arch somewhere and the other will go on a similar rock type, uh, maybe a blank slab of rock that's somewhere maybe a hundred meters away or so. And so that's there to capture the background vibrations. So by looking at the differences between those two vibration signals. We can start to tease apart where they're coming from and what's being generated by the arch versus from some farther source, maybe an earthquake or something else that that we're not interested in.
0: So what are some of the things that disturb the arches and cause them to vibrate?
1: It's important to note, you know, at the start that arches are constantly in motion. They're constantly vibrating as we speak right now. Every second of every day, they are constantly vibrating and great variety of energy sources cause them to vibrate. You know, natural seismic energy from the earth, The earth is alive with seismic energy uh, generated by a number of sources and these excite resonant vibration of arches. Uh, Wind is a great exciter of uh, resonant vibration, but even without wind, they're still in motion. Arches are constantly in motion and and generally the common sources are wind, common natural sources are wind and just uh, background seismic energy of the earth. But in addition, a great variety of anthropogenic sources also stimulate vibration. Road traffic, for example, train traffic, for example, air traffic, for example. All these generate vibrational energy. And if they have frequency content, if that energy has frequency content that matches the resonant frequencies of the arches, then they stimulate or excite resonant vibrations another new energy source for example in the moab region is the paradox valley or the bedrock saltwater injection facility which has been generating a a, a fairly large number of large magnitude earthquakes relatively large magnitude earthquakes for you know this kind of wastewater injection and and these earthquakes certainly stimulate vibration of the arches at levels which are not commonly felt in the region. The region is generally seismically quiet, and this injection facility has really dramatically changed the rate of seismicity in the region in just the last couple of years.
0: And with the data, recording of the arches, is there any way to tell if one is rapidly becoming unstable? by its seismicity?
2: In theory, yes. We've yet to put our finger on on a data set and say, yes, this is the signal uh, failure.
1: The whole concept behind this sort of structural health monitoring is that the resonant frequencies of a vibrating mechanical system are, are really simply a function of the geometry and material properties of that system. And in material properties is really only two. There's mass and stiffness. So if something changes in the mass or the stiffness of the system, and you're able to measure, you know, make repeat measurements of resonant frequencies over time, you have this indirect way of sensing mechanical change. So this is the basis for structural health monitoring. It's been around for a hundred years uh, in civil and mechanical engineering. We have established by now that we are able to, you know, measure the resonant frequencies of these arches and also towers uh, from ambient seismic data, as Paul mentioned. And mon- measuring them again over time gives us chance for a relative comparison. And so, you know, we're looking for changes, for permanent changes in resonant frequencies over time that would indicate that, you know, either there's been some permanent change in mass or stiffness. Now it's usually stiffness that correlates with damage
0: Mm -hmm. as
1: a rock gets, becomes, you know, damaged or cracks propagate or new cracks grow, it becomes softer in the net. A stiffness decrease will manifest as a decrease in resonant frequency and this should be a permanent decrease to indicate damage.
0: I know you have a, a system for cataloging and classifying the different arches that you've studied so you can compare them. Can you explain a bit how this cataloging works?
1: Paul completed a big study where he compiled 17 arches and through this, you know, ambient seismic measurements and 3D. Finite element modal analysis. We're able to back calculate the elastic modules or the stiffness of these rock formations, and so Paul had, had compiled a huge amount of data that we generated over five years and more uh, in that study. And and one of the results is, as he was explaining, was you know that that stiffness seems to correlate with iron content, which often correlates with stratigraphic position. So that's one of our kind of you know big compilations and classifications. The other one that you describe is it's a stress-based classification where geometry is a key factor is really the key factor. Um, so it's describing how the geometry of the various arches that we compiled in a database of 19 features. We generate 3d models using photogrammetry of each feature. We bring these into a finite element program and do um, gravitational static stress analysis. And simply to boil it down to a metric, we take all the compressive stresses from the future, all the tensile stresses in the future, and create a ratio of these. We can relate this theoretical, theoretically to some end-member cases. This mean principal stress ratio, you know, we, we believe correlates with arch stability. Paul, do you have anything to add to that?
2: This stress ratio that we're, we're generating from these 3D models really is a way of putting a number on something that is maybe relatively intuitive. And you see a rock that's flat, a flat beam spanning some gap, you instinctively know that it's not the most stable shape for a rock versus you see a nice um, curve reaching up, kind of feel that inherent stability to the rock and so this this idea of comparing compression and tension via these these 3d models is a way of taking that intuition and putting a number on it and then being able to sort through all these shapes
0: in the data you are collecting are you distributing it to any government agencies or any anybody that is using it for something besides just uh cool science
1: we work with the Southeast Utah group. I mean we, we measure arches in arches, canyon lands, natural bridges, Bryce Canyon, and also of course Rainbow Bridge. We work with these Park Service units to provide feedback from our measurements. You know, for example at Rainbow bridge we've measured three times in seven years we have observed no change in resonant frequencies between successive measurements so that's a feedback that we often provide informally to our our park service contacts and folks we work with there that's a nice piece of feedback to have because if you look at it the other way how would you know that how would you know that it has or has not accumulated some crack propagation somewhere in the rock being able to provide that feedback, even informally, is a thing that we often do.
2: The lasting um, impact of, of our results and, and findings uh, comes through in the, the interpretive park rangers, um, the, the programs and the outreach that the parks develop on their own. Maybe just as simple as arches are always vibrating. At a fundamental level, is, that's kind of an eye-opening thing for a lot of people. that the rocks around them are, are always moving and that that movement is telling us something about the rock masses. It's often the interpretive outputs, which we also find, you know,
1: very fun and satisfying to share with people, just this concept that arches are constantly vibrating and they are vibrating at a set of resonant modes that in many ways is is like a guitar string, you know, a, a fundamental mode, and then you have, you know, higher order modes that have an increasing number of node points or points of zero displacement. And so if you just have this image of a, the different modes of vibration for a guitar string, well, arches are doing something quite similar to that. And you get torsional modes where they're twisting and all kinds of fun things. And so we make these visualizations from our computer models of of this as well, which are, of course, highly, highly exaggerated, but show (laughs) how the arch is actually moving day in, day out. And the other quite exciting thing that, that we do is we turn this vibration into sound. So we do this, we take our vibration measurements made on the arch and we simply speed them up. Doing so, the set of resonant frequencies that we measure, which are vibrational measurements, You know, they they occur at frequencies between, let's say, 1 and 10 hertz generally. And this this is below the range of human hearing. So by speeding them up, we bring those frequencies into the range, into the realm of human hearing. And now you can experience those resonant frequencies as sound. Because the set of resonant frequencies and therefore like the the vibration fingerprint is unique to every landform, the sound print is also unique to every landform. It's fun to, you know, hear those, compare those, um, yeah, and just give people a new way to experience
0: these unique geologic features. In the background is the ambient seismic vibration or sound of O Arch, a 20 meter span in the Entrada sandstone. The vibration is sped up 25 times to make it audible. Compare this with Corona Arch here which is a 43-meter span in the Navajo sandstone. What is contributing to each arch having this unique waveform or sound?
1: The larger and more slender the feature, the lower the resonant frequencies, and so the lower the resonant tones. So again, you have you know, mass and stiffness in here. Mm -hmm. so the larger features have higher mass they have lower resonant frequencies Um, but you know the slender the more slender features in the net have lower stiffness as well they're just more slender and more you know flexible Mm -hmm. um, so they also have lower resonant frequencies the rock types even amongst the different you know sandstones in the region Entrada, wingate navajo the rock types tend to be reasonably similar. It's not like we're comparing an arch in sandstone to an arch in granite or basalt. The rock types are are relatively similar. So, you know, geometry is is really playing the first order control on creating the vibrational fingerprint or the, you know, the, the sound print uh, of each landform. Cool.
2: Yeah, I like to think that you can hear the size of the arch play the sound of Rainbow Bridge and it's this low rumble. And then you switch over to, you know, something that's, that's 10 times, 100 times smaller. And you, you immediately hear the difference, this higher pitch kind of buzzing. Again, is kind of this intuitive thing that this low rumble is coming from a large object versus a kind of higher pitch sound.
0: Well, Jeff and Paul, it's been really great to uh, talk to you guys. It's really fascinating, the work you're doing. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you, Peggy. I appreciate the chance to talk to your local audience. I we like your show and uh, yeah, I'm a big fan of Science Moab in general.
0: Well, that's great. It's awesome what you guys do. To learn more about the work of Jeff Moore and Paul Geimer and listen to more Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Science Moab. The show is produced by Christina Young, Peggy Hodgkins, and KZMU. If you love learning about science on the Colorado Plateau, then you need to join the Science Moab movement. Subscribe to our podcasts, leave a review, get our newsletter, and donate to Science Moab to support knowledge sharing in this place we all love. Your contributions make Science Moab possible. Go to sciencemoab.org to learn more, and thank you, science lovers.